0: Today's scripture is taken from 1 Kings, chapter 21, verse 1 to 15, found on page 354 in your pew Bibles. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel his wife said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat, cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast, and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you, he's no longer alive but dead. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As you've, you've picked up already in some of the, the opening remarks and even the songs, there is a, for sure a tension in the air around the Palm Sunday celebration. It's sort of the nature of this day, that there is a, a conflict that's internal to the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem. Nick said it earlier in his opening invitation to worship that we're meant to see Jesus as a king in contrast to other forms of kingship and power. And so when we see Jesus coming in to Jerusalem on a donkey, those early Christian communities where we're taught to see Jesus in contrast to the dominant pictures and images of kingly power in that that culture. One of the developments in New Testament studies in recent years has, has been this understanding with a closer reading of the Apostle Paul in several of his letters that that one of the things that he's doing in his letters, Ephesians and Colossians, and there's glimpses of it in Philippians, is that he's actually contrasting the Jesus who is the king who died on a cross with the most powerful and prominent images of Caesar, the leader of the Roman Empire. And so those letters for Paul are spiritual letters written to encourage the people, but they also have a political savvy about them because what Paul is doing is he is encouraging those early disciples who in many cases their lives were threatened because of their faith to live more deeply in one kingdom, to give their lives fully to one kingdom instead of following the kingdom of Caesar and the world. You can see that that imagery as we think about the the, the story that Midori read for us from Matthew's Gospel and is there for us in the other Gospels. This, This picture of Jesus coming on a donkey builds in that contrast to the way that Caesar, the governor, the ruler, the king, the lord of the Roman Empire would celebrate a military victory. Coming into the conquered city Or celebrating through Rome in order to express power with a fancy chariot and beautiful, magnificent horses, completely clothed in the regalia of of power and image in that time. But the gospel is planted firmly in the middle of that empire. The gospel is planted firmly in the middle of those politics. And, and most of you know this, that, that because of those, those kingdoms in conflict that took place for those early Christian communities, that many Christians ended up giving their lives because they chose one kingdom over the other. And that choice of which kingdom you live in, which, which kingdom you give your allegiance to, is still a choice for us today that in many ways we live in a culture that has dominant characteristics, that has certain themes, that has certain demands on our participation and on our allegiance. The funny and sad thing often is that we want a leader like Caesar. And the Jewish people wanted a leader who could come and who was not just like Caesar, but was more powerful than Caesar, who could just crush Caesar and kick Caesar out of Israel so that Israel could once again be God's country, God's land, God's people. They were longing for the restoration of the pride and the power of Israel. And many, many people were beginning to think that Jesus was the person who was going to fulfill that role. But I hope you see that when Jesus comes parading into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, that there's some kind of irony about that parade. There's some kind of turn. There's some kind of trick of the trade. There's some kind of image that is there for us to see. And that's why we celebrate so closely the Palm Sunday Parade moving into Holy Week. Because that same crowd, those same disciples... Some of those exact same people who were singing Hosanna, this must be God's messenger. This must be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's performed miracles. He's healed people. He has brought a new economics of providing food for people who are hungry that we we don't understand. And yet a few days later, they were crying for his crucifixion. So disappointed were they. And so this Palm Sunday comes to us as we wrap up our Lenten series on the seven glittering vices. And today is the vice of greed. And what we're doing is we're doing a comparison. At least that's what we're launching off in terms of our reflection this morning. And we're looking, we started, we started with a king named Ahab. And Ahab is a powerful and pathetic picture of greed. He's a king who has everything and yet he wants some guy's vineyard. And he tries to manipulate the power of his politics to, to, to get the vineyard. And then he is disappointed because of this rejection. He's asking for this man to give up his birthright, to give up his inheritance, to give up his family tradition so that he can have this, his new glittering trinket. He can have this new toy, he can expand his power, expand his vegetable garden. And he's turned down, and 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 the, the the description in the book of Kings says that the so Ahab went home when he was rejected and sullen and angry, and he lay in his bed sulking and he refused to eat. There's a picture of how greed works its way into our lives. He's not satisfied with his food because he wants something else more importantly. Listen to some of these quotes on greed. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies. Greed cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life. Greed for money. Greed for love. For knowledge. Has marked the upward surge of mankind. Gordon Gecko, the iconic main character in the award-winning and controversial film of several years ago called Wall Street. Greed is good. Greed for everything. Greed for anything. Greed for lack of a better word. But the are excessive in acquiring and keeping possessions, even to the point of depri- depriving others of what they deserve or need. Greed causes callousness towards those in want. Justice, giving others their due, is the virtue that greed attacks. That's what Ahab can't see. Is so obsessed with his desires that he can't see the beautiful life of this man who just wants to keep his family heritage, who wants to continue to, to till his land. But something has gone wrong in Ahab's desires. That, and Ahab is known as one of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel. Later on, when Elijah the prophet confronts Ahab, um, one of the things that, that we read is, There was never a man like Ahab, verse 23, who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife, he behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, the idols of the Ammonites. That's what greed does. It it takes material things and attaches transcendence to them. It takes material things and transcends ultimate purpose to them and so develops and nurtures that obsessive desire to have something because we come to believe that it's actually the most important thing that a human being can have. The contrast of the kingdom of Ahab is the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus. It's interesting in some of the the intricate details of this passage that there's an invitation there to think about Jesus in the reading of 1 Kings 21. As Jezebel conspires to murder this this man, um, Naboth, she comes up with this plan to have two criminals sit on either side of him and to falsely accuse him. And the man in the middle ends up getting murdered. And who does that remind us of as our Palm Sunday imaginations take us into Holy Week and towards the Good Friday cross of Jesus? There's this invitation that comes with Palm Sunday. An invitation which comes in First Kings 21 to take a step back and to, to take this comparison of the kingdom of Ahab and the kingdom of Jesus seriously. Greed has become a kind of a fascination for us. It's amazing that there is this consistent, in popular culture, there is this kind of consistent fascination. And when a story like Bernie Madoff and his deceitful pyramid scheme, which risked the the livelihoods and the savings of, of thousands of people because of his profound greed, that those are the kinds of extreme stories that often take Our attention. So so there has there's Wall Street back in the 80s. There's the wolf of Wall Street in more recent times. Now there's the the television series called Billions. We we are fascinated by this, this kind of obsession that is almost beyond belief. Because we understand that there is a depth of depravity that takes human beings so far down the track. Rebecca DeYoung, I think, says it right, that greed causes a callousness towards other people. It causes a lack of concern for justice. Because it's so concerned about taking for itself that something in the mind and something in the heart changes. And this takes place for Ahab. When he goes to bed and he's sullen and he's grumpy and he becomes depressed because he's obsessed with the goal of obtaining that vineyard. And it begins to rule not only his mind, it takes over his heart. Not only takes over his mind and his heart, it takes over his wife's mind and her heart. Seriously. Seriously to buy a new plot of land, you would conspire to murder another human being. The key about the seven deadly sins is this. The key is not for us to use those seven deadly sins in order to pound ourselves into guilt and submission. The key of Using the seven glittery vices as tools for a soulful spiritual life is not in order to write out a list of how bad we have become and how evil we are. The reason for connecting the seven glittering sins in the season of Lent is because the real focus of the season of Lent is Jesus and his kingdom. And we have to admit that we struggle to understand why God brought his kingdom through Jesus in the way that he did. And that's why we continue to practice it in our devotion and in our prayer and in our meditation and our reflection. But the key to the seven deadly sins is to realize that Jesus came to redirect those, that sinfulness that Jesus came to secure a way through for us. Jesus came to search, to secure a way beyond these sins. The message of the seven deadly sins is that you are not that you are a no good dirty sinner completely trapped and utterly unable to 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 escape in your, your life and your practices these kinds of deadly patterns and habits. That's not the message. The message is that there's a way through, that there's a way beyond, that there's an alternative to these practices that that seem so obvious. And so with with Ahab and his obsessiveness, a, a picture of greed, a greed that would just lose its sense of transcendence to the point where it would attach the receiving or the obtaining of a piece of property to the point that you'd murder another human being. That kind of sin sickness. that kind of dark obsessiveness. We have an opportunity to think about Jesus. Jesus, it seems, if we track his life, is called to a completely different kind of lordship and kingship than Ahab Ahab wanted more and Jesus was born with nothing Jesus was laid in a manger by his by his parents the manger is the place where cattle eat Jesus came into this world his parents could not even find a place to stay They didn't have the kinds of connections. They didn't have the kind of community. They didn't have the network of resources. Jesus was born into a poor refugee family. But the imagery surrounding his coming has to do with not about what he would gain for himself, but that right from the get-go he would come to provide food for a hungry creation in being laid in the manger. For most of of Jesus' life, he lived a life of such simplicity, profound simplicity and poverty. One of his most famous sayings is, foxes have holes. In other words, even animals have their homes. But the son of man has no place to lay his head. Home ownership and a savings account and a good pension were not part of Jesus calling in this life. And so early in this story, his story of Jesus life that we follow closely because we believe that our salvation lies in him and in his way. We believe that God is revealing his kingdom through Jesus. And we remember that Jesus, when he died, he was stripped, his clothes were given away. He died with nothing. He came into the world with nothing. He lived his life with nothing. And he died with nothing. Abandoned. There was no death planning for him. There wasn't the money to afford a nice burial plot. I wonder if you've thought to yourself in your reflection on Jesus' story how much greed actually plays into his final days. He was betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples. Now Judas could have been ambitious for all kinds of things. Judas could have been ambitious for political power, he could have been ambitious for a higher religious role in society. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed Jesus for money. He betrayed his friend and his Lord because he was greedy. And so Jesus is not a stranger to the reality of greed. This seventh and last of the deadly sins is one of the sins that got to the heart of Judas. That caused him to lose that sense of transcendence. That that caused him to lose that sense of what actually was reality and not reality to the point where his greed overtook him and he was tempted in it and he followed through it and he passed it on by giving Jesus away, by betraying, by leading the authorities to Jesus. Matthew 27 tells the story, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders and the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. And so they bound him and they led him away and they handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. So he has an aha moment. He has a that come to Jesus moment. But the authorities say to him, What is that to us? That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left and then he went away and he hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and they said it's against the law to put this into treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took 30 pieces of silver, the price on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Even in Jesus' betrayal, greed is redirected. Do you see that in the story? That the 30 pieces of silver that so obsessed Judas... That when he came to his senses and he couldn't live with, that 30 pieces of silver was actually redirected towards the poor. That money in God's kingdom is redirected in its proper direction towards buying a burial plot for people who did not have the connection, who did not have the network, who did not have the money in order to provide that for themselves and for their own families. And so whenever the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Caesar, the kingdom and the greed of Ahab come up against Jesus, something is transformed. And in that story, there's hope for us because it reminds us that God doesn't seem to be satisfied to leave us with our seven deadly sins or our seven glittering vices. But that God is constantly purposefully trying to renew us and giving himself to redirect our hearts in the direction of his heart. And he does that through Jesus. Jesus is the story that awakens us from our insanity on thinking that these several temptations are actually going to lead us to the joy and the peace and the security and the safety that we desire. Jesus is always the one who opposes us in our our choice towards the direction of evil, but also offers us a way through. Jesus isn't the angry prophet who is preaching condemnation on us. Jesus is the one who is gaining our attention and calling us to a softening of a heart so that we come to our senses. Ahab, as the story unfolds, is going to come to his senses a little bit. Judas comes to his senses. There is no salvation in money. How in the world are we going to embrace the teaching of Jesus when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust are going to destroy? How in the world do we have a chance of not doing that in this culture? that seems obsessed with connecting our security with our money. And in a way that sort of normalizes greed, bring, makes us all just a little bit greedy because of our obsession with our own safety and with our own security and with our own futures. How in the world do we have a chance of hearing the words of Jesus to the rich young ruler, sell? everything that you have and give to the poor and follow me. Where and how could that ever become even a glimmer of truth for us in a culture where the kingdom of this world and its obsessiveness about money is grinding us and grinding us? You know, in many ways, the way that the culture wants us to think about greed by, by distracting us, I think, in these movies about opulence and an outrageous kind of greed that most of us can't actually identify with because they're kind of beyond the pale. And so I, I see those cultural, um, those cultural stories of obsessiveness and the vulgarness of greed as distractions for us in asking the question about our own greediness. It's, it's easy to look at Bernie Madoff and just be completely shocked by the level of greed, the level of deceit, the level of living your life so that not even your family knows what you're doing, not even your children know what you're doing. Instead, I think it's a more helpful way is to, is to sort of normalize greed in, in a kind of a, a more possible set of questions. As disciples of Jesus Christ, how do we give ourselves to continue to participate systematically in a culture of greed by the way that we participate in the habits of the heart of this culture in our planning, in our goal setting, in our saving, in our understanding of money and its reality. How does this connect with us? How does this speak to us? What, what are we doing with the fact that most of us live in the small percentage of people in the world who actually control the 90% of the world's resources. How do you think about that? How does that affect the way that you pray, the way that you plan, the way you participate with your money and in the world today? How does the temptation of greed affect the life and the ministry and the organization of the church? Is there any question to be asked there? Is there anything to reflect on there? How does our obsession with money prevent us from using material gifts as ways to really bless and care for other people? Where do you see the kingdom of Jesus breaking into the culture today? Are there any signs in the broader culture, in business, in fashion, in finance? Are there, are there any signs that you're seeing as you're, you're reading the newspaper, as you're following the news stories of the world? Are there any signs that, that there, there's a, a spirit of generosity, that there's breaking in, that there's a recognition that, that the power of greed actually is not what human beings were designed for? Another way to completely redirect it is to ask the question, what are you greedy for? What are you longing for? What are you desirous of? The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says a really interesting thing. He says, he talks about ambition. He says, make it your ambition to live a simple life and to work with your hands. How in the world are we supposed to read that prophetic text in our culture? Make it your ambition. He's using those words on purpose. Become ambitious for simplicity. How ambitious, how greedy, how desirous are you for the things of mercy? For the reality of quiet and a quiet heart. For the beauty of service. For the power of deep prayer. There is a kind of a a greed for God's righteousness, a longing for God's truthfulness, a passion for God's kingdom that is real and that is true and that moves us towards the transcendence. The greed continues to have a power over us. Let's move beyond our money, to be quite honest. We've become greedy for information. It's called the internet. It cultivates this desire for us, not for less, but for more, whether we need it or not. Whether it helps shape our hearts or not. There's an intensification that takes place in our culture. It's an intensification around sexuality, it's an intensification around things of violence that human beings seem to only be more and more satisfied with a certain intensification, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's power, whether it's information. And so the glittering vices, the seven diddly sins, they, they can become a menu of asking ourselves, how, what is the state of my soul? One day, somewhere late in my 30s, I realized that there was a trend in my heart that I would just simply describe as this. I realized I was starting to worry about money more than I've ever had in my entire life. I realized that that things of finance were becoming more interesting to me. That I was asking myself all kinds of questions about how much is enough, and whether we were on track for enough. And I, I remember it bothered me so much. I wasn't, I wasn't raised that way. And, and money had not been an interest to me for, through my teens, through my 20s, and through most of my 30s. It bothered me so much that I admitted it to Karen, my wife, and, just said, and asked her to think about my life and our lives and, and just to ask this simple question, like, why do you think money is becoming more important? We talked through you know, having, having kids, and maybe it was because of the worry about university and, and all of those kinds of things. And, and pretty soon that, that, that uh, distraction turned into a, an interest in finance, an interest in financial markets and in stocks and all kinds of vehicles for investment. And, and I, I have to say that at some point in time, I just had to pull myself off that track. Just to remind you, I wasn't working as a banker. I was living as a pastor. And yet somewhere, at some point in time, most of us are touched by these temptations. I really believe that one of the blessings in my own life around this area has been the presence of people who have offered me an opportunity to see that God could redirect the habits of my heart. I'm, I'm so thankful for my, my maternal grandmother, to all of my grandparents, really. But I had, I had my rich grandparents and my poor grandparents, that's what we used to call them, because one of them owned a cottage and one of them didn't. But it's interesting that when my grandparents passed away, both the rich ones and the poor ones, they really did pass away leaving very little. The reality is that they gave most of it away to Christian endeavor and to good things. Their will was not filled with hundreds of thousands of dollars. That could have been a disappointment to my aunts and uncles and to us cousins, but but really what it did is it spoke to who they were into the kingdom that they were living in. My, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, used to always be slipping us these silver quarters. I think I may have told something about this story before here in Knox Church. And my mom used to always say to her, mom, don't give the kids money. Every time we visited, she was like sneaking them into our pockets and into, we'd find them in our boots and our socks and because she just didn't want my mom to know she was giving us these silver quarters. And we thought my grandmother was so rich. And when I went to university, I lived with her for three years, and one day when I was snooping in the um, china cabinet, which was upstairs in a spare room because her home was too small to have the china cabinet in the the dining room, I found this little sugar bowl, and it was filled with several dozen pieces of these silver. But she redirected it in the direction of love. When she died, she didn't have anything left except for a heart filled with love for God and for her family. A life spent in prayer for her grandchildren. And we're still seeing signs that those prayers are being answered even as we're getting into middle age, all of our grandchildren. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for my new friend in Cuba, Giovanni. You know the politics of Cuba. Cuba is a pretty poor kind of place. It's going to get a lot of attention the next week and the next months ahead. But through, we think, the direction of the Holy Spirit, we've we've met a young person in Cuba. And he hardly has two cents to rub together, but man, is he rich in family. Does he ever love his two little daughters and his wife? Is he ever rich in friendship? Is he ever rich? I, I don't know if I've ever met a person who knows how to celebrate, who is grateful. And because of recent changes in Cuba, we went to his mom's, um, his parents' home. And we went into this home, and, and I learned that, that his, his mother is my age, is the same age as I am, born in the same year. We're just a few weeks apart uh, in their little home and realizing that they raised children here. They lived here for the whole 35 years. And I just began to do the math and compare with, with what we have and what we take for granted. And it's a beautiful thing that God gives us other people in our lives who are followers of Jesus, who who have a way of living and spending and praying and living out their lives that remind us that Jesus is in the business of redirecting our hearts. It's hard to know what to do with Ahab. He was a vile, selfish, manipulative, evil man. It's hard to know what to do with the gospel in relationship to Judas. He was a frustrated, greedy person who lost his mind and his soul by the betrayal of his friend who happened to be the salvation of the world. But there's something to do for us. And that is to continue to follow Jesus with all of our hearts and our souls and our minds. And to see the way that the generosity of God works in peculiar and beautiful ways through his teaching and through his living and ultimately through his dying. It's not easy to follow Jesus in the the purity and the power of his kingdom. In this culture, there's an empire esque quality about this culture when it comes to money, in the same way that there was an empire esque quality to the Roman Empire. And yet, we enter into this holy week together, guided by the Holy Spirit, because as we watch and we pray and we notice the pathway of Jesus, we are offered a way of salvation that exceeds the negativeness and the narrowness and the selfishness of our most deepest habits and temptations and obsessions. May God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit make us greedy for the way and the kingdom of Jesus. Amen.